Well, the title of today's sermon uh, is in the form of a question. And that question is this. Do you really understand the gospel? Do you really understand the gospel? Well, just let that question resonate within you as you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, I'm going to read Paul's discussion on this matter from verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Let's read. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. So getting back to our question, do you really understand the gospel? Evidently, the Corinthians struggled with this question. They knew it in fact. Uh, when Paul states the gospel very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, perhaps the most clearest uh, annunciation of the gospel we find in Scripture, it's actually a restatement of what he's taught them in person uh, when he was among them. The gospel being the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the benefits received by faith alone. They knew this, in fact. But they seemed to misunderstand the nature of the gospel in a practical sense. You see, Christ gave the church two institutions uh, that were both uh, visual proclamations of the gospel. You see them uh, on display 
you see the gospel. The first one is baptism. And it signified entrance into the church and uh, into the wider kingdom of God. The second one was the Lord's Supper or communion, which signified continuation uh, in the church and in the wider kingdom of God. And both of these were vivid pictures of the Lord's death and his resurrection. But the abuses within the Corinthian church surrounding the Lord's Supper left uh, questions regarding whether they had truly understand the significance of the gospel. Uh, They'd failed to realise that the way that we treat fellow believers speaks volumes regarding our understanding of this most precious and vital truth. So as we discuss the Corinthian situation now, my question to you is this. Do you understand the gospel? So Paul begins in verses 17 to 22 by explaining the issue. If we look back to the beginning of chapter 11, in verse 2 we read this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So we see to start off with that there actually were some things that they did right, these Corinthian believers Here Paul is commending them for something. But if you read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, most of what Paul was either uh, A, heard about them from other sources, or B, heard directly from them as uh, uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians uh, in response to a letter that he'd received from them. Most of of everything that he's picked up about this church uh, reflects serious issues in this fledgling church. Verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So Paul has no praise for them. He has no encouragement. There's no thanksgiving here. And why is that? Well, coming together as God's people should cause blessing. It should be a good thing that we meet together. But instead, what was happening is it was causing harm. It wasn't for the better, it was for the worse. The uh, the Greek word underlining that English word worse is actually connected to the idea of moral evil. And so instead of behaving as God's holy people, here they are acting as if they still belong to the world. So in the following instructions, he writes to correct them, not commend them. And Paul articulates the issue uh, in verse 18, where he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you know that the Corinthian believers were known for their ungodly divisions. Uh, Paul has addressed that multiple times already in uh, the opening chapter. Then again in chapter 3, there were these issues arising about who was following who. Uh, You know, some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, others, I follow Christ. 
Paul's writing and saying, no, 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 no. We're all servants of the Lord here. No matter what part of the role we play, we're all serving Christ. So don't divide over this issue. But the Corinthians were also known for their ungodly unity. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses the issue where they're tolerating sexual immorality in their midst. Uh, Someone claiming to be be a believer uh, was committing flagrant sexual immorality. Uh, And what They're just accepting this. And so Paul writes, remove them from your midst. Wasn't an unbeliever who hadn't had a transformed life or come to know Christ yet and they were still in their sin? No, this was someone who was proclaiming faith in Christ and yet still living as though they were among the world. And so the Corinthians were uh, divided over things they should be united in. And yet they were united in things they should be divided over. That's why Paul says, and I believe it in part. You see, sometimes the church must be divided. <coughs> uh, Jesus himself uh, points out in Matthew chapter 13 uh, in the parable of the weeds, uh, where he points out that there are actually weeds among the wheat. There are actually those in the church who profess faith in Christ but don't actually possess that faith and that won't actually be found out until the end, until when Christ returns. We need to recognise that. Matthew 18, then Jesus speaks about unrepentant believers and how they must be uh, removed in order that they might repent and then be reconciled again. Uh, Any aspect of church discipline is never about retribution, Uh, It's about reconciliation and restoration to the body and to God as well. That's that's the purpose behind church discipline. And so Paul writes, and I believe it in part, verse 19, For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. See, divisions in the church over important, crucial matters of the faith we will reveal the true believers. Which side of the fence we come down on tells us a great deal as to our faith. But in the main part, division is unbecoming of the church. Yes, there will be moments where division must occur. But in the main, we are to work towards the unity, maintain the unity of the spirit that we already have. Now, while the Corinthian believers think that they're actually celebrating communion, it's, it's far from it. Uh, their divisions strike at the heart, uh, strike at the entire purpose, at the entire symbolism of, of the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. How could it be? Uh, The Lord's Supper points towards the the unity that believers have through Christ's atoning work. But Paul writes, well, what are you guys doing? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. There's no unity there. So whatever it is you're celebrating, certainly not the Lord's Supper. Just so that we uh, understand um, that the early church, they met in houses generally. 
And communion uh, was normally celebrated at the end of a shared meal uh, together. But what seems to be happening is that certain believers, uh, the rich, the affluent, the wealthy, they were bringing along great amounts of food uh, to be shared in what was probably a potluck meal. And yet they were actually refusing to share with those less fortunate believers, those on the lower socioeconomic uh, rung. And Paul's not rebuking their wealth, not at all. But he's rebuking their attitude. They've got no patience. There's no pastoral care or no concern for their fellow believers here. What there is, is a great deal of greed, uh, excess. There's even drunkenness. And there's lording of possessions, bringing it along so that they can lord it over those who have none. It's a far cry from what we see in the early church in Acts chapter 2. Read in verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Corinthian gathering did not look anything like that. So Paul says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? If that's the case, why don't you just stay at home and eat and drink rather than waiting to come together and doing this in front of the others? And he taunts, Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Their actions give that distinct impression that they're despising the church. Anyone looking on, how else could they think what's happening there? Now just to build on this, please note that the word church that we see in verse 18 and then again in verse 22 It's an important word there. Uh, It actually translates uh, the Greek word ecclesia. And if you've done any study at all, uh, or been in the church a long time, you'll know that ecclesiology is the study of the church. And it means the called out ones. Uh, Those called out of their assembly in the world and called to assemble before the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, well, how on earth do you get the English word church from ecclesia? Um, Well, ecclesia gives the meaning to it. called out to assemble before the Lord. The English word church is actually derived from another Greek word uh, which we find in this passage. Uh, That's what makes this passage uh, quite significant for our understanding of what the church is. Uh, That word is called kuriakon. And it means belonging to the Lord. And we can see that meaning in verse 20, uh, where it is translated the Lord's Supper. Kyriakos means Lord. So it is the Lord's Supper, the supper belonging to the Lord. And so what then is the church? Well, it's the assembly of the Lord's people, those who belong to the Lord. That's what the church is. Now, Aside from making these important points about the church, uh, 
you know, out of all the places in Scripture, that's where we see those two words and the meaning of church come from. Uh, it actually adds to the nature of Paul's argument here. You see, if the church is the assembly of the Lord's people, then by their actions, the Corinthian believers are upturning the very nature of what the church is. They're humiliating those who belong to the Lord. There's no sense of unity in that whatsoever. Now you might say, well, how on earth does this all relate to us today? Uh, Especially since we don't regularly uh, share meals together as a church, and then particularly we don't finish that with the Lord's Supper. And so what is the purpose for us? What do we need to understand from this? Well, I think really there's this universal principle here that underlines the whole thing. All those Christ has redeemed are now in his body. All those Christ has redeemed are now one in his body. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the next chapter across, Paul writes this in verses 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. If we fail to treat with respect and dignity and care all those who profess faith in Christ, no matter what socioeconomic level they're on, then we fail to understand what Christ has actually done on the cross. And if we can partake in the Lord's Supper while knowingly causing disruption in the body, then we do not recognise the significance of this celebration. And we've misunderstood the Gospel. So having then seen the issue, let's now look at the institution itself. That wonderful practice established by Christ. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul in this shows the foundations for his rebuke against the Corinthians. He'd already delivered this message uh, to them. He'd been with them 18 months uh, uh, teaching and discipling them. um, Which we read about in Acts chapter 18. He'd given them solid teaching. And so he was delivering what he received, uh, what what he had already spoken to them. But moreover, uh, that message that he was delivering was what he received from the Lord himself. It wasn't his own concoction here, his own uh, uh, imagination and wonderings. No, it was from the Lord. Paul speaks of, the revelation that he got from Christ in Galatians 1, verses 11 to 12, where he writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is authority to this gospel message and to the Lord's Supper that's a picture of this gospel message. So what was this institution, this established practice? Well, it was that 
The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, do you notice something immediately in that context? It was that it was founded out of division. On the night when he was betrayed. And while it was God's sovereign plan for Christ to go to the cross, Judas and uh, the other Jewish leaders were still responsible for their moral choices. And it really highlights uh, the devastating nature that division can have among God's people. And there are four quick things that we need to understand about this institution. Number one, it's a symbolic institution. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's an incredible sign of Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. Uh, he broke the bread of the Passover meal, stood before them, broke the Uh, the bread and pointed to it saying, this is my body. And he was establishing a practice that the church would carry out to remember the importance of the cross for the centuries uh, to come. Now it's important to note uh, that in this action, he's not pointing to, uh, as the the Catholic Church suggests, the idea of transubstantiation, uh, that the Elements of the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, uh, by all accounts, looking at them, they remain the bread and the cup, the wine. But on a spiritual level, they have actually become the body and blood of Christ. Now, uh, to a lesser extent, there is also the Lutheran view of consubstantiation. Not that the, the elements of bread and the wine have actually been transformed into the body the actual body and blood of Christ, but that the actual body and blood of Christ are in and under and with the elements. But we have to say straight up that these ideas are actually false. Um, Firstly, it's not a continual sacrifice. Hebrews 10 verse 12 states that when Christ had offered for all Uh, time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God that was it one sacrifice for all time it was complete no need for continual sacrifices any longer or furthermore when Jesus was raised from the dead he was resurrected in the same physical body that was buried in the tomb Uh, now while it was Now a glorified body, it was still a physical body. And when he ascended into heaven, it was this same physical body. And when he returns in the future to judge uh, this world, it will be in the same physical body. We need to understand that the bread and the wine do not turn to Jesus' body and blood because he is presently and perpetually using his body. It is localised in heaven at this moment. (laughs) Nevertheless, we need to understand that it's still more than merely symbolic. For Christ, as we understand, is, is among his people through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But 
Because Christ's nature is omnipresent, that is, he is both God and man, uh, he is actually omnipresent everywhere. He truly is present when we celebrate this supper. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, Paul writes that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So because his divine nature and his human nature cannot be separated, then in some miraculous way, we are truly connected to his physical presence in heaven every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What a wonder that is. Well, as such, the divisive actions of the Corinthian church was making a mockery of Christ's sacrificial work and his ongoing presence with his people. But moreover, this institution points to the substitutionary nature of Christ's work. So number two, it's a substitutionary institution. These little words, for you. This is my body which is for you points to the incredible doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, Christ died. That is a penalty. Christ died. Substitutionary for the sins of his people in their place. And atonement means to make them right with God. So penal substitutionary atonement means that Christ died for the sins of his people to make them right with God. John 10 verse 15 Jesus states, I lay down my life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? John 6.44, those whom the Father draws to Christ. So for the Corinthians to show no concern for those whom Christ died for is to show no concern for Christ's work. On the cross, he actually traded places with his people. But to humiliate these other believers, is to say that they weren't really uh, worth the effort that Christ went to to save them. So it's a substitutionary institution. Thirdly, it is a sovereign institution. Verse 25, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. In contrast to the old Mosaic covenant where people needed to follow the law perfectly for salvation and then they they needed to continually perform uh, animal sacrifices to atone for the sins uh, that they had failed in. Well, in the new covenant, God would fulfill the requirements of the law by himself through his son. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could do this. Of course, the law foreshadowed the new covenant. Indeed, that great event of Passover uh, under the old covenant prefigured what Christ would do. Christ took the picture of Passover and uh, filled that with so much meaning. He is the lamb whose blood was shed to save his people. The sovereign nature of this institution also speaks volumes against the Corinthians' actions. 
See, the Lord's Supper is a vivid picture of Christ's sovereign work to bring people into a new relationship with God. But when these people treat each other with such disdain, it makes a mockery again of Christ's work. It suggests that his work is inferior rather than sovereign. And fourthly, it is a second coming institution. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Taking of the emblems is a visual proclamation of Christ's death, of Christ's resurrection, and of course his ascension and ultimate return. It's a reminder that we serve a risen Saviour and one who will return to judge the living and the dead. Now in the context, doesn't that not serve as a solemn warning to the Corinthians for their behaviour? Christ is alive. Christ is aware of how his people are treated. Christ will avenge all injustices. Here's a warning for you. Now we haven't gone into great depth on any of these aspects of the Lord's Supper, but it's enough to see the significance of it, and indeed the significance of why uh, it's mentioned by Paul in this context, why he explains the nature of the Lord's Supper. Because recognising the nature of the Lord's Supper should have a dramatic effect on the way we celebrate it. And the way, indeed, that we carry it out with, with fellow believers on the day and the way that we act with our fellow believers on any given day as well. But not to leave people uh, guessing as to how theological truth should affect practical living, Paul closes out the discussion with some instructions. And to these we'll turn and then finish. Paul summarises his instructions very simply and clearly in verse 27. Where he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so there's a cause and effect right here. Unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper means that we've acted in ways that are contrary to what the Lord's Supper symbolises, what it means. And that's very serious indeed. Well, how do we know what unworthy is? Well, there's two assessments that we need to undertake. The first one is an internal assessment. An internal assessment. Verse 28 Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We need to examine our thoughts, our motivations, our deeds. But not merely looking to our own standards of what is right or what is good, but looking to God's perfect standards. And we look to his word and we submit to it. In line with King David in Psalm 139, this should be our attitude. David cries, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
in examining ourselves, we call upon God to reveal the nature of our hearts and in humble obedience we repent of those things that he brings to mind. In coming to the Lord's Supper, this should be done in a general sense as we think about all of our actions during the week, all of our thoughts. But remember the context of this teaching That is the way the Corinthians were treating each other. And so while we have an internal assessment, number two, we also have an external assessment. Verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We are to examine ourselves with particular reference to how we are treating our fellow believers. And the New Testament is filled with instructions about how we are to live with one another, how we are to care for one another, to edify one another. 1 Corinthians is filled with such instructions as well. In verse 30, Paul tells us how important this care is. He points out the consequences of not. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now this might seem extreme, but it was actually a mercy of God. Verse 32 explains why. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. True believers will never lose their salvation, but sometimes to ensure that this is so, in his mercy God disciplines us. And when we don't listen, he disciplines us harder. And he keeps going until we get the picture. And sometimes that discipline is even to the point of physical death. See, God takes a believer's life in the present to preserve their life in the future, to preserve them for eternity. But Paul says in verse 31, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. See, if we performed an internal and an external assessment and then repented and immediately sought the things of God and sought the ways of God, then we can avoid any continued discipline. (coughs) And we can experience now the blessings of being uh, and celebrating and sharing the Lord's Supper with his redeemed people. Now, once we've performed these assessments, we just leave it there? No, of course not. We have to act upon it. Assessment is always followed by action. And the second aspect is crucial. I mean, you don't go to a doctor and get a diagnosis from them and then not do anything about it, do you? Of course not. You follow through with a treatment that is prescribed. So here... Verse 33, where Paul says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. We too must never be complacent or settled when we come to the Lord's Supper. We must be prepared to act upon all those things that God has revealed to us where we need to repent 
then seek restoration and reconciliation. Just in closing, the Corinthian problem may have some cultural restrictions, which we've mentioned, but the underlying principle is universal. All those Christ has redeemed are now part of his body, united together. And believers are to respect and care for each other no matter what their background or their socioeconomic circumstances. Get back to that first question. Do you really understand the gospel? Then when you come to the Lord's table, you will have made every effort to ensure that these things have been carried out. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the institution of the Lord's Supper that it was established so that we might always be called to remember your grace. We thank you that it is such a vivid depiction of the gospel, of Christ's death and resurrection to atone for the sins of his people. We thank you that it drives us to consider how we live together as your people. As you continue to draw more people to faith in your Son, help each one of us to recognise the unity that we have in Christ. Amen. Well, before we celebrate this remembrance, let's stand and sing us the musos to come up. And as you sing these words, please use this time to examine your hearts before the Lord.